Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. More than 20% of the U.S. economy is directly affected by weather. The energy and agriculture sectors are particularly vulnerable to losses that can mount as a result of heat waves, drought, flooding, and cold. Just a couple of degrees can make or cost companies millions of dollars. There's a group of meteorologists who make it their jobs to connect the weather to these lucrative markets, and their forecasts can ultimately give their clients that competitive edge. Today, we'll talk with John Davis, Chief Meteorologist at Risk Pulse, about the fascinating world of weather forecasting for the commodities market. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is this is really interesting because as someone in the meteorological field, I, I've been exposed and aware of this world of forecasting and commodities. But I suspect many people that are listening to Weather Geeks right now may not be familiar. So let's just start with some basics. What is a commodity? I want to start there first before we really dive into the weather connections. Right. Well, a commodity can be anything from some of the basic agricultural products, such as corn and soybeans and wheat, to livestock and to soft commodities, what we think of as like sugar and coffee and cocoa. But also commodities can be thought of as foodstuffs as well. In other words, you know, products here that are processed and products here that are transported, you know, around the nation and around the world. So a commodity can really be thought of as any kind of food or beverage type product out there. Some commodities are traded and there's different exchanges where that's traded. So companies manage their risk with that. Um, Here in Chicago, we have the Board of Trade or the Mercantile Exchange where things like corn and soybeans and wheat are traded and those markets are used to for companies to manage their risk. Yeah, I I wanted to start there because I mentioned commodities in the introduction, but I want to get more into the commodities and weather world. But now I want to cycle or circle back and have you introduce yourself. I mean, you you have a very impressive resume. You graduated from University of Wisconsin, which is one of the top atmospheric sciences and meteorology programs in the nation. I mean, you spent time on Wall Street. I mean, you were chief meteorologist at Citigroup. Just tell us a little bit about your pathway uh, for meteorology. And I always like to ask Weather Geeks guests, particularly the meteorologists, what was your experience that sparked? you to get into the field? <laughs> well, like, like many other meteorologists, um, I was one of those kids that when I was five and six years old, I had a weather center in my backyard. Back then, every report that I would do in school was always weather related. So I was a total weather geek when I was a little kid. And so my hobby as a kid just kind of went into my profession as an adult. So after going to school and went to school in Madison, Wisconsin, so I didn't have a track to go into something like, you know, applied meteorology, which is this is the true applied meteorology, applying weather and climate knowledge to things. 
So as I kind of was close to graduation at Wisconsin, there was a firm um, that came on campus to interview. And so that firm was in New York. Um, it was a Wall Street firm. Um, any individual that's over 40 probably recognizes the name E.F. Hutton. Yes. Um, anybody under 40 no longer knows the name E.F. Hutton. It's kind of a funny benchmark there. And then, you know, I went into the interview. Um, I got a second interview in New York and I knew nothing about Wall Street. In fact, um, my parents were both English teachers here in Chicago and they were both farm kids from South Dakota that moved from South Dakota to Chicago to teach English. So I knew nothing about business. I knew nothing about Wall Street. Um, I never took a business class in college. Um, I knew quite a bit about meteorology. And so when I went in on the interview, we talked a lot about agriculture. I spent all my summers on our family farms back in South Dakota. So just from those experience, I knew a lot about agriculture. So we talked a lot about agriculture and that's what they wanted is a meteorologist that knew agriculture and had a good feel for the weather. So I had a second interview and then I flew out to New York and they gave me the job and you know, you're 22 years old, you said, sure, I'll go. And so I moved in a day, literally from Madison, Wisconsin to New York City. And um, that was the start of now in my 34th year of doing, you know, what I do, applied meteorology. So initially, um, I worked 18 years on Wall Street. Um, so for the same firm, E.F. Hutton morphed with Shearson Lehman Hutton, with Smith Barney, with Citigroup. And then by the end of that 18 years, I was chief meteorologist with Citigroup. And so that was the first 18 years. And the focus initially was agriculture. But then energy came into play. That was especially during the 90s and the early 2000s. And then within the structure of the firm, we even did things outside of commodities, such as looked at retail sales, um, beverage consumption via heat in places like Latin America and South America. And so that was really the first 18 years of my career is more kind of on the Wall Street mode, the financial you know, end of things. Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of rise of the energy sector. I, I, I'm at the University of Georgia now, but I spent 12 years at NASA at Goddard. And I remember sitting in my office one day and I got this random call by a, a, a headhunter. And they were calling from, I believe it was Aquila Energy at the mm -hmm. time. And, and and then I also got a call from Enron. I mean, many people know that name. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were looking for meteorologists in that sector. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And I'm glad you described that because I think even for people today, you don't realize the breadth and scope of where meteorology is. And so that's why I'm so happy to be talking with you. I, before we kind of go further, I just want to give you a sense of, John, where you're, you're dealing with someone here that that's at the top of his field. Uh, John was given the prestigious award for outstanding contribution to the advancement of applied meteorology by the American Meteorological Society. And uh, that's an organization that I serve as president of. And in 2017, and I didn't know this about you, John, uh, you were awarded the Ken Spangler Award for outstanding vision uh, to advance the role of meteorology in the new energy economy. And, and also your outstanding leadership for, I guess, the inaugural uh, back in 2004 AMS Energy Committee. Mm -hmm. So I, I read all of that just to give you a sense that this is someone that's a, a true leader and visionary in our field. And so it's an honor to ha have you on the show today. Now, tell us a little bit about Risk Pulse. Well, Risk Pulse is a firm. We really do three main things. We look at global agricultural risk management. We look at global energy risk management. 
And the third iteration of what we do is we look at the risk of supply chain logistics and transportation and how the weather, climate, and other things affect all of those three sectors. Right. And that's certainly, you know, we've we've talked to people uh, on Weather Geeks. We, ha- we had meteorologists from UPS on. And so uh, I think there, some of the, the listeners will have a feel for why that's so important. Talk us through sort of what a typical day is like for you at Risk Pulse. If there's there's someone out there, some young meteorology major or someone that's a meteorologist that want, wants to get into this field, what's, what's a typical day like for you? Sure. Well, a typical day starts really early. It's always been that way, and it likely will always be that way. <laughs> so I wake up really early, uh, central time here in Chicago. I wake up around 4 um, at my in the office at about 4.45, and that begins to start the process. So our weather operations team is all online, and there's individuals all over the country, and we all get together right around 5 a.m. And so we begin to, number one, talk about the weather, whether that's, you know, energy, agriculture, supply chain logistics. We talk about what's happened here overnight, And then we begin to, number one, write reports. And then we begin to interact with our clients and communicating that information to them in written form. And also we do a lot of conference calls in the morning. So by far, the busiest part of my day is from, you know, around 4.45 to about 9 or 10 a.m. The remainder of the day is doing research. There are some busy times. I'll give you an example. When the noon computer models come out, the 12Z, um, that's a time that we have to watch things very closely to see if there's any changes or any changes in risk parameters out there. And then that's the middle part of the day. And then interspersed there, we're doing, you know, different projects of research. We're doing, you know, some longer term type projects. And we're collaborating here with different, you know, items with many of our clients. So, yeah, it starts early. And, you know, 33 years ago when I was in New York on Wall Street, it also started about 4 a.m. And it still starts at 4 a.m. So that is the one consistent of this job is that it's very an early morning job. And I think it will always be that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I want to kind of sort of diverge here a little bit because you mentioned that you look at the models. And I wrote something recently in Forbes about the new GFS model that the uh, National Weather Service is going to be debuting or operationalizing in March. And so I'm sure you're well aware of the sort of whole Euro versus GFS model. But I imagine as a professional meteorologist, you're looking at all the models. But what are your thoughts on the current state of models, the whole Euro GFS and even the private sector models that are coming online? Well, I think in, in one sense, um, you know, you want to pick the model out there that is most skillful to what you're doing at the time. <clears throat> we are a global organization, so we look at things globally. And so, for, for example, some of the mesoscale models, then we can't use that on a global scale. So one of the things that we do from a model standpoint is we look at skill scores. And within those skill scores, we base some of our data analytics onto what model is performing the best at various time frames. So we look at a blend and we do that through data analytics. So for example, you have a 15 day output. We have a different ratio of individual models within that. And the ratio can be different per day going out 15 days. And again, we want to make the most skillful model out there, the most skillful forecast to help our clients. And so we kind of use model diagnostics 
to make the most skillful forecast. And what we do on that, we bring as many models as we can in, and then we use different ratios or weightings, if you will, to go through and begin to get that specific forecast. And again, that's true for the U.S., that's true for South America, Asia, Europe. That's a global thing that we tend to do. Yeah, and that, and that really is important to sort of synergistically blend data sets together. And I think that's what you're doing. Exactly. Now, you mentioned commodities earlier, and I asked for the de definition of commodities simply because I mentioned it in the intro, and I, I don't like to leave terms hanging out there for our listeners. Now, I want to throw a couple of other terms out there and, and get you to define those mm -hmm. as we kind of dive into our discussion, futures and a hedge. Mm -hmm. So futures, um, there are futures markets out there. So when we're talking about futures, that is a way for companies or, for example, individual farmers to manage their risk over time. So in other words, when we talk about futures, you can manage your risk. Let's say that your crop is harvested in October. Well, you can look at futures for next October and manage your price based on those futures in October or longer. Or if you're in the energy markets, you can look at what we call the summer strip or next winter's strip. So that's the futures markets. In other words, you know, it, it, it's managing risk over time. When you, let's say you're a farmer, you plant your crops here in March or early April, you do not know exactly what your crop production is going to be when you harvest in September or October. That is a way in the futures market to begin to manage your risk here over time. And again, some futures markets go out years in the future. And so you can begin to manage your risk here at those times. So it's a way to manage your risk with the unknowns. In other words, the unknowns of what your crop production is going to be, what energy demand will tend to be, for example, this summer, or what kind of tropical activity you'll have here during that tropical season, late summer I, and early fall. Can I, and I want to follow up with you on the hedge, but I want to kind of jump in there because you opened the door. You know, here in Georgia where I, I live, we experienced Hurricane Michael as it made landfall in Panhandle, Florida. But even in southwest Georgia, tremendous amount of damage to the agricultural sector, the mm -hmm. cotton, pecan, peanut. Now, in a situation like that, the unknown was certainly at the beginning of the season would have been Hurricane Michael. So is that an exact example of exactly what you're talking about here and, and perhaps why some of our, our south, farmers in Georgia um, might be thinking about some of this type of thing? Oh, exactly. And, you know, even we have clients in Georgia and so that was a really sensitive time for us is that we are trying to, you know, manage, you know, their number one, their risks, not only from a farming or agricultural standpoint, but we do a lot of business and livestock. So, you know, different companies that tended to have chickens, we do a lot of work in poultry, different companies that tended to have livestock, again, extremely sensitive here to the kind of conditions that occurred, you know, both in the tropical season and, for example, in the winter season as well. So it's not just agriculture, but the livestock here are as sensitive, you know, to extreme weather conditions. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Mm -hmm. 
and welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard at the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking today with John Davis, the chief meteorologist at Risk Pulse. And we're talking about the various ways that weather intersects with the commodities markets. And we just learned about futures. Now I want to learn about hedges. I've heard of hedges, but I, I have to admit, I, I may not be as versed on what it is. So I'm very interested in your answer here. Yes. Yeah, so after my 18 years on Wall Street, then I went to work for a energy production firm. And that firm was called Chesapeake Energy, based in Oklahoma City. Um, and the, we stayed up here in Chicago in the office here in Chicago. So our main responsibility there was to help with the hedging program at Chesapeake. And what does that mean? We, so for a company like that, they know how much natural gas that they're going to produce by month, by season, by year. What they don't know is the price. So in using weather information, and the energy markets are extremely sensitive to weather and climate, in using weather and climate, you get an advantage as to locking in price into the future. So for example, let's say you have a really cold winter and the price, in this case of natural gas, then tends to go up markedly. Then at that point, you lock in that price for the future and then it's no longer an unknown. That's what we call hedging. Uh-huh. So you're hedging the future. You know what your production is going to be. That's a known. You don't know what your future price is going to be. So if you find opportunities, then you hedge that during those time frames. And in the years that, you know, I was at Chesapeake Energy, um, you know, working with an individual who started that name, Aubrey McClendon, um, during those years here, we had huge success in the hedging operations of that company. So it's really locking in price of the production that you have. Now that, that makes sense. And I can see sort of, I can see the business model in that too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some have talked about as commodity weather forecasters, uh, you're actually forecasting the forecast. What, 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 when people say that, what do, what do they mean? Well, a lot of times, you know, as to that can happen both daily and also it can happen kind of seasonally too. So in other words, I'll give you an example of that. So let's say that we have a pretty good indication that we're going to be getting into an El Nino event here for the winter. So one of the things that we do is begin to forecast or anticipate what others will tend to say. So we kind of call that, what will the masses be thinking? So let's say that you have a strong El Nino event. There's a pretty high tendency for a strong El Nino event of having a warm winter. So your energy demand would be quite low. So before that, then you try to forecast or anticipate what others will tend to be talking about and what others are thinking and determine, is that right or is that wrong? But you do try to anticipate or forecast what some other forecasts will tend to do out there. That's also done daily, believe it or not. So in other words, sometimes in the morning, we'll get questions from clients um, at a very sensitive time as to what direction do you think that the 12Z models, the ones that come out during the day when all the sessions are open, which direction do you think they will go? Will they go warmer? Will they go colder, wetter, drier? That could be in Brazil and Argentina, That could be in the eastern U.S. of the major population centers. That could be in Europe. So it happens both short-term on a day or longer-term kind of seasonal-type issues out there. 
Right. That's that's very interesting. I, I, I want I wanted to kind of pivot now since you bring that up. You've mentioned the energy sector and you've mentioned agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those are clearly weather sensitive industries. What other industries or businesses do you find to be most susceptible to weather? Well, certainly supply chain logistics or what we call transportation. And supply chain logistics or transportation is, you know, compared to the trading world, it is just a huge um, multidimensional world, the movement of anything. You know, we talk about commodities, but when you're talking about products and movement of product, you know, globally, the kind of numbers that you're dealing with are just phenomenally impressive. I'll give you an example. So this, the whole world of supply chain logistics and managing risk within that industry, that world kind of came to us at Risk Pulse. So during the winter of 13 and 14, when the polar vortex became, you know, cocktail. Ah, uh, yes, fodder, <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, they lost a lot of beer. So the major beer companies actually came to us. Because in a four or five week period, they lost huge amounts of beer. It was blowing up. It was blowing up in kegs. It was blowing up in bottles. It was blowing up in cans. Wait, wait, stop. I want to kind of stop you there. Literally blowing up. What, what was going on there? I, I want to make sure I, I get this and our listeners get it. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It freezes and it blows up. <laughs> okay, so they were, literally it was just because it was so cold it was freezing. Right. Even okay, kegs, I got that. Even kegs were doing this, yeah. Wow. And so in a short amount of time, they lost huge amounts of money in this. So actually, they came to us to begin to manage that risk. Because sometimes if you're transporting beer in this example, um, whether it's on a rail, whether it's by truck, whether it's sitting outside of a warehouse on a truck, when you get extremely cold, it's very vulnerable to those types of conditions. So that whole world of what we call supply chain logistics kind of came to us. It started in beer. And some of the things that happened in 13 and 14, which were huge amounts of money that these companies tended to lose. And then that has expanded rapidly here over time. You know, looking at overall, you know, harbor information and ports and ocean routes and trucking and what kind of equipment a company will tend to use. Um, you know, whether they don't have protection, whether they need what we call a reefer or refrigerated trucking, which are very expensive. But at times they need it, at times they don't need it. So in that world, there are lots of weather decisions, especially for the food and beverage type industry. And so every decision that they make of shipping something, of transporting something, has weather decisions behind it. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and that makes sense. Any any industries or companies that you know you that you deal with or work with or have worked with in the past that the listeners might be no way I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, well, certainly from a like a retail standpoint, you know, thinking about, you know, cold air masses and thinking about overall, you know, cold air masses, how that affects like winter clothes sales, how that affects summer clothes sales, big impact in that type of a sector. Um, Another industry that is very weather sensitive is the flower or live plant industry. It's getting towards spring, although it doesn't feel like that in Chicago today. <laughs> no. But as we get towards spring, um, we will be shipping plants and flowers northward. And so a lot of times that is unprotected. And so we help some companies out looking at that and when they can deliver 
you know, live plants and flowers to, you know, the Home Depots of the world and things like that. Um, and they will not freeze because it, typically those are outside. And if you move it up to a place like Chicago or New York and you freeze, it's a total loss. So wow. again, another very weather sensitive industry. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And amazing conversation today with John Davis, Chief Meteorologist at Risk Pulse. I've uh, been doing this uh, about 30 years, uh, clearly knows his stuff. And one of the interesting things is he is illustrating that there are so many different career pathways and sort of tentacles of the weather uh, enterprise into uh, daily life and society and commodities. I want to shift the discussion now and talk a little bit about how you can convey your messaging to your clients. Uh, how, how do you gear your forecast to your clients? And do you find that it's difficult to communicate the forecast to non-meteorologists? Well, um, no, that, that's one of our jobs. And so that's something that I've been doing since I graduated Wisconsin back in 1985. So communication is one of the most important things that we do. So ways that we communicate. Um, there's lots of different, you know, methods and mediums of communication. We write morning wires, some agriculture, some energy, that those are sent out very early in the morning to our clients. We also have screen shares with many of our clients. So we'll have a, sometimes those sessions are 10 minutes, sometimes they're 40 minutes. And we'll talk about, you know, via maps, you know, different things that are going on, different risks out there. Um, risk to the forecast out there and really get in depth here when you do that for quite some time. And then the other way that we communicate risk is we have, you know, data analytics. We have software programs. One of our software programs is called Sunrise. And so within Sunrise, data analytics then convey that risk in a visualization or data standpoint to the overall client. So that communication, which is really more important than anything, and, and for the most part, we do not talk to meteorologists. And, and the people that we talk to have varying levels. You know, some individuals, I've talked to some individuals for 25 years, almost every day. After a while, through osmosis, I guess, you know, they become pretty good at weather models and trends and things that will be happening in different areas of the world. There are some new individuals that take over or new clients that they're literally starting out from scratch. That's to me is one of the funnest things of the job is communicating sometimes very intricate things to different levels. Some levels close to a meteorologist, although they have no educational training, other levels basically would be from kind of talking to your uncle at a family party. Right. So it's all over the board and your job is to communicate that to the user, your client in this case, to their level. And again, we have lots of interns that go through our uh, organization. And so it's one of the things that we try to teach and convey to them almost every day is communication to clients. 
and who know your clients and who those clients are. So there's nothing more important than what we do than communicating. Because if you don't communicate, then it's very hard to assess the risk and make the decision necessary on the other end of the line. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I want to kind of pick up on something that I, he- I heard you say in that answer. You were talking about that some of your clients become skilled at trends and mm-hmm. sort of picking up things. A question I actually wanted to ask you earlier, you mentioned that you use the current for- forecast models, but how important is researching past forecasts or analogs in what you do? Extremely. And so, you know, with in forecasting weather, whether that is, you know, the next couple of weeks, whether it's intra-seasonal, um, whether it's seasonal, um, there are different methods to use for those. And so, like, for example, many of the clients that we have, they too are looking at all the models as that, are, that are coming out. So they know whether a model is warmer or colder or wetter or drier, for example. So it really gets into some of the other things out there you know, in making decisions and presenting that, you know, uh, not going into great detail here, but one of the things that we focus on a lot is what we call intra-seasonal type conditions, looking at that week three, week four, week five. And in many of the marketplaces, you know, that is kind of one of the key areas where there's most opportunities. You know, right or wrong, a lot of people think that well, we know the next couple of weeks and we have all these computer models. That can be wrong at times too. Absolutely. But from an intra-seasonal standpoint, the, the real key area for us is that week three, week four, week five. So a lot of the research that we do, whether you're talking about stratospheric research, whether you're talking about tropical convection, a lot of the research that we do focuses on that time frame. Because that's where we found that's the real need for individuals out there trying to make their decisions and assessing risk. Yeah, we're talking with John Davis, chief meteorologist at Risk Pulse. And we call this episode the million dollar forecast. And that's where I want to go. Your your forecast can mean millions of dollars to your customers. So with that type of money on the line, is it pressure filled? Do you ever feel the pressure? And have there really been some sort of touch and go forecast that you've made in your career? I mean, there can be, of course, that's part of the business. And I mean, to me, I've done this for a long time. So I've been my, you know, what, 34th year of doing this. I've done this for a long time. And so I'll be honest with you anymore. Um, I really kind of like the pressure because in situations where there's not, you know, you tend to like those situations. And I guess it comes down to kind of the individual, you know, do you want to be one of those individuals that is up at the plate in the ninth inning or, or not? And certainly in this business, it can get a little bit sensitive. There can be some pressure, but, you know, those are the times to me that are the most um you know, fun. And those are the times here that really are the most important to your clients. So I actually really enjoy those times. And, um, you know, and I guess I kind of always did, but even as I go on in my career, um, I like those pressure points and I like to be, have the bat in my hands in the bottom of the ninth. And um, I really enjoy that part of it. So. Yeah, so you're you're what I, I think there's a sportscaster you call a prime time player. You 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 like those big time moments. But have there been any uh, forecasts that you think back over your 34 year career particularly successful that you're particularly proud of? 
Oh, yeah. You know, some of the like intra-seasonal calls that were made and again, the kind of successes that um, like my group. And again, when you talk about me, I'm always we're always talking about my groups and, um, you know, it's always a team effort in everything that we tend to do. So from a team standpoint, the kind of successes that we had, let's say, in the 90s, whether that was agricultural or energy or the kinds of successes that we have nowadays, you know, are, are quite a bit different. It seems like the successes nowadays tend to be this intra-seasonal world. You know, I'll give you an example of that. So in the middle portion of the month, we make a month ahead outlook for the next month. So in the middle of December, we make an outlook for January. And that's where a lot of our work on research tends to go into. And we spend hours and hours, a team together and going over those trends and some of those calls you know, making a call on December 15th for January have been, you know, in the last couple of years, both summer and winter have been phenomenal. And um, that's something <clears throat> that's really been proud from a team standpoint, and the things that we've done. And again, kind of getting away from the models. We've talked a lot about models on the program, but getting away from the models and using other research to come to decisions and probabilities of what a forecast will tend to do. And that's not only here in the States, but globally. And so some of the things that we've done globally and some of the trends that we've recognized and um, from a longer term standpoint, the European heat wave last summer was just a um, was a, just a incredible situation for us because we began to recognize that very early months ahead of time and so for well, for global markets and for our European clients um, that was just a huge deal here you know back last summer but it's an example of the, you know some of those successes that you have yeah and the very important successes is what, what what's been most frustrating about your job over the years? It's frustrating. Um, I guess from a standpoint, a lot of the frustration comes into play getting back to computer models. You know, we all know that at times computer models can be volatile. Sometimes they don't handle situations well at all. And again, you may be totally correct on the direction that you think things will go. But with the volatility of computer models, you know, sometimes, you know, markets and things will um, you know, dictate change, you know, in the short term. So you have to watch that. But sometimes that can be really frustrating if, you know, there's a volatility of, you know, computer models and it's not the solution that you think is going to kind of play out out there. Um, and I guess the other thing is just, and of course we get this, one of our jobs is to make commentary on others. And that's always a little bit kind of frustrating at times as to there's a forecast out there or someone heard something and to comment on that. Um, sometimes there's validity in that and sometimes there's interesting things that come out and other times, you know, not. But it's part of our job to comment on that and give our opinion on someone else's forecast kind of out there. But at times that can be kind of frustrating. Yeah, you know, talk with John Davis, chief meteorologist at Risk Pulse, and we're two meteorologists talking. And you know, we, I've been around the, the the weather enterprise for a while now, and like like you, 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 you and I both know that sometimes people struggle with the concept of conveying information with that has uncertainty. And I, and I can see that you you you're involved with that quite a bit with conveying information to your clients and your stakeholders. Why do you think it is, uh, John? And this is just two meteorologists talking here. Why do you think it is that people People, particularly just lay people, people in the public, give meteorologists such a hard time about 
weather prediction and you the old joke oh you guys are always wrong all of the time blah 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 uh when in fact actually our skill set within a certain um, number of days is actually pretty good people just tend to remember the occasional bad forecast but why do you think compared to say stockbrokers and medical doctors and others that sort of predict the future we we catch a, such a hard time with the public well, I think part of it is that the world that we live in, number one, there's so much misinformation out there that people will just hear, you know, whether they're looking at, you know, their weather.com or whatever that is, there's so much misinformation out there. And I think anyone that's involved in the forecasting sector of anything, you know, whether you're forecasting sports scores coming up or you're forecasting the weather or you're forecasting the markets, you know, anytime you're in the forecasting mode or if you're an economist and you're forecasting things here in the financial markets, the forecasting world can be a pretty difficult world here at time. And I think that kind of goes with the territory. So in other words, anybody that's forecasting anything, you know, you're going to take, you know, some you know negative things at times. Anyone that's in that world of forecasting things that will go on, you know, into the future. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think there is a, quite a, one of the things I've noticed. There is so much information out there. I mean, I mean, we've got excellent apps out there. We've got the weather.coms. We've got the weather undergrounds. And, and, and they, 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 they give us good information, but you have to know how to consume them and you have to know how to kind of put them in context with all the other information. And then, then the, the person out there on social media tweeting uh, a model hurricane three weeks out. And so there is quite a bit of information that you see um, kind of coming close to the close here, but there are a couple of other things I want to kind of tap your brain on while I, while I have you here on the Weather Geeks podcast. Where is your industry headed? Where, where, where do you see the sort of next sort of benchmarks or mileposts for your industry or things that you see coming along in the weather enterprise that can really help you? Right. Well, I think that some of the changes have already been taking place this decade, and it's certainly going more toward data analytics. So instead of, you know, looking at a written forecast, instead of communicating that on a, you know, go-to meeting, then what people want to make decisions is data analytics. And so that's, that's been happening here X amount of years. I think it kind of started in the trading world. That's always kind of the world where some of the cutting edge things kind of come out of that. Um, but you're starting to see that happen in all different worlds out there. You know, distributions, looking at data analytics of probabilities out there. So a lot of quantitative type work is to making your decisions in, in all of the sectors that we deal with. And that's something that's been changing for a long time, but you see that accelerating here lately. So a lot of times what people want, you know, they can get a vis visualization of a forecast, but what they want is the underlying data. They take that data, put it into one of their models, whatever they're looking at, well, it's crop yields or transportation of trucks across the country, and they do data analytics on that. So that is something that's been changing for a while, but it certainly seems to be accelerating, especially this decade, the last five, six, seven years. And um, But that's something that's changed a lot here recently. And in looking into the future, I see no reason why that's you know not going to continue, but just more and more data analytics. Um, you know, we have a lot of we've hired numerous people here lately, and they all have programming backgrounds. I think you have to do that nowadays. Whereas 
when I went to college um, in Madison, Wisconsin, a long time ago, that just didn't happen. It, w- it wasn't part of the sequence here back then. So that's something that's changed a lot here lately, and, and that would be in one term, it's data analytics. And that, that you kind of led into my my last question. You know, if there's a young meteorologist out there trying to get into this weather and sort of financial sector intersection, you know, what what type of skill sets there, are you looking for? What should they be focusing on other than meteorology, of course? Yeah, I would say a couple of different things here. And one of them that I wouldn't say it's not business. Um, business you learn when you're out there. But I would say two things. Communication is crucial. Always has been, always will be. You know, with data analytics are great, but if you don't know how to to communicate that and communicate risk of data analytics, then that is a problem. So communication in every form, written form, talking to a client, doing presentations, that's crucial. I would say in some ways it's more important nowadays with the breadth of information out there than it was 10 and 20 years ago. And the other thing would be data analytics programming and um, you know having those kind of backgrounds out there. And they kind of go together too. So those really the two focuses here, communication, data analytics slash programming. Last question, John, where, where can people find more information about you or Risk Pulse? Do you have any websites or are you on social media anywhere? Sure. Well, LinkedIn, you know, the basic sites on LinkedIn. And then our um, company is riskpulse.com. Um, and our website has a lot of information on many of the things that we tend to do um, as a company in all those different sectors. It's been an amazing discussion. I want to thank you, John, for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I want to thank the listeners as well. We we really try to give you insight on the podcast into sort of the nooks and crannies and corners of weather and climate that you might not necessarily think about. And I think this episode was a great example of that. John, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. It's been so much fun. And Dr. Shepard, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do for our community. Thank, Thank you. And thank you all for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. 